if you're the liberal bubble surrounded by, you know, very, very right wing people, you kind of think of yourself as special. The transgender movement and its ideology, it's anti-feminist, and it's also intellectually incoherent. I've been denounced more times than I can count, but I've never had anyone actually engage my argument. Hello, I'm Julie Bindle, and this is Action Men, a series in which I have interesting conversations with men that actually get up off their backsides and contribute to the work that feminists are doing to prevent rape, domestic violence, and challenge pornography and the sex trade. Today, I'm going to talk with Robert Jensen, Bob. And I first met Bob in 2006 at an anti-pornography conference organized by a mutual feminist friend in Boston, where Bob was speaking about pornography, its harms to women, and how men has an obligation to recognize the sexual exploitation inherent in pornography and to stop consuming it. Now, Bob, if I may call you Bob. Informal is always better, absolutely. Perfect. Well, we're all friends. We've known each other for a long time. But but I do want to ask you this question. When you talk about radical feminism for men, is that not a bit like turkeys for Thanksgiving? I mean, why? Why would you put yourself out to embrace a movement yeah. that is absolutely against your freedom to abuse and exploit women. It seems crazy to me. Um, you know, I was lucky to be exposed to feminism decades ago in the late 1980s when um, there was a real radical feminism committed to a real conception of liberation. And in that movement, which I first encountered through the feminist critique of pornography, uh, I came to realize pretty quickly that everything I had been told about feminism up till then, I was about 30 years old at the time, was a distortion or an out, an out lie. Because as your question indicates, feminism was presented to men as a threat, as something that was going to take something from us. And it was a, a lie I believed, like many men socialized in a culture like the United States. But then I did something truly crazy. I actually read feminist work and talked to feminist women. And that, of course, changed everything. I also had a few very trusted fem male feminist colleagues, men working in the feminist movement, who gave me a, a kind of model for moving forward. And as I've been saying ever since, what I learned is that feminism, especially radical feminism, is not a threat to men. It's a gift. If we can present to men uh, an argument that it's not only the right thing to do, it's in your own self-interest to embrace a feminist critique, uh, then I think we have a fighting chance. Now, of course, there's a lot of you know specifics that we have to work out about how one does that. But in general terms, that's what I realized. This was the way I could become a full human being. Well, tell me about your time um, as a professor of journalism. So you're at Austin University, and we all know, well, we, we actually, we probably don't know, how Texas has gone in reputation, and at least partly in reality, from being one of the most kind of regressive uh, states to what they see themselves now, it sees itself now as progressive, which is wholly bad for women because it means it's embraced the whole sex work is work, trans women are women, surrogacy is a human right. But during your career there, 
what what did you find in terms of the response from your students about reporting on things like sexual violence or what many would call women's issues, but we know are pivotal to, to, to the, the world that we live in? Well, in a way, my feminist activist career was very separate from my teaching career. I did teach in a school of journalism. And so I did not teach courses directly on the sex gender question. Occasionally, of course, those issues would come into my teaching. Uh, but I primarily focused on uh, a different set of courses. And I think that was generally good. People asked me, do you want to teach in women's studies? And I said, no, you know, I don't have any special expertise. Let the women teach women's studies courses. I don't need to take over that space. Uh, but my experience was more in the, the kind of political world. So I taught at the University of Texas at Austin, and Austin was the liberal bubble within an otherwise conservative state. And, you know, whether it's Seattle and Washington or, you know, those kind of towns, uh, they, they tend, in my experience, to develop a kind of smugness. So if you're the liberal bubble surrounded by, you know, very, very right-wing people, you kind of think of yourself as special. And I bumped into that immediately when I came to Austin, started meeting people in other left movements, you know, anti-capitalist, anti-war. And they would find out that I uh, was part of the feminist anti-pornography movement. And of course, in liberal left circles, you were supposed to be pro-pornography because pornography was liberation. You know the story better than anyone. Yeah. And so that back in the, in the 1990s, it was kind of an uneasy truce. I could be part of left movements and still retain a radical feminist analysis of the sexual exploitation industries. But over time, that became increasingly untenable. And for me, the tripwire came in 2014 when I wrote the first article on the trans question that I had, had uh, written. And that basically got me banished from the Austin left. Tell me about the first time you were canceled and for what? Yeah. So um, as you know, there's been a femini radical feminist critique of the ideology behind the transgender movement since the 1970s. I was fortunate once to meet Jan Raymond, who wrote the first really book-length treatment of that. Um, and it was quite surprising because, of course, the trans advocates would always say that Janice Raymond was this evil you know, woman. And I met her, had coffee with her and her partner, and it was a delightful couple of hours, you know. She's she's uh, one of the best. She's one of the best feminists yeah. I know. She's a wonderful person, and has dedicated her whole life to research and activism around these things. So, uh, I knew there was a trans question, uh, but like a lot of people, I stayed away from it because I also knew it was inevitably going to lead to conflict. But in 2014. Uh, some feminist friends basically said, why are you silent on this? There's women out there taking the hit for it. Why are you not articulating a radical feminist critique of trans from a male perspective? You did it on porn. You've done it on prostitution. Why not here? And I thought, well, okay, that's, that's good. Um, somebody's holding me accountable. I was a tenured professor. I didn't, you know, there, there wasn't much to lose. Nobody was going to fire me. I didn't fear violence. So I wrote an article that was geared towards speaking to the left that made what I thought was a very calm, deliberate argument for why uh, the trans ideology was in fact inconsistent, not only with feminism, but with left politics. And that led to a flurry of 
discussions behind the scenes that I didn't know were going on. Well, before you carry on, Bob, tell me, because I think that people need to hear this, what your arguments were in that paper. Exactly what did you say? Yeah, well, I just pointed out um, that the, the fundamental problem for the left is that the left is supposed to be focused on a structural systemic, systemic analysis. You, you don't fight capitalism by simply fighting specific capitalists. You look at the system, right? You don't fight American imperialism by looking at a particular president who took us to war. You look at the system. Well, that's, a, I think, an appropriate way to understand human affairs, to look at systems and structures of power. But when it comes to the trans issue, the left embraces an individual medicalized approach. It says, forget about the system and structure of patriarchy. We're going to look at this as purely a psychological question for individuals that can be solved through the medical establishment. Well, that's a fundamentally anti-left perspective. Well, it's neoliberal, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And of course, leftists don't like being told that they're in fact taking this very kind of soft liberal or even neoliberal approach. And I think that's what angered a lot of people. You know, I've been trying to to hone that argument in a way that I could present to ordinary people, not just in intellectual circles. And in my most recent writing, the way I'm summarizing it is the the transgender movement, and this is not an attack on anyone who has gender dysphoria or is struggling with identity, but the transgender movement and its ideology, it's anti-feminist, it's inconsistent with an ecological worldview, and it's also intellectually incoherent. And what I mean by that is not you know, an insult. It's that if you actually read trans literature and try to make sense of it, I find it impossible to do so. There's no consistent definition of what transgender is. There's no even attempt to understand the etiology or the causes. Right? The, the thing that I find most striking is at this point, the transgender movement says we are normal. There's nothing pathological about being transgender. But at the same time, it demands uh, access to medical care, including medical care that, that interferes with normal human development through puberty blockers for children. Um, and so it's both entirely normal, yet a condition that needs medical treatment. Well, it can't be both. That's, that's intellectually incoherent. Uh, and when you examine the, the, the work in the trans movement, you look at their writing, none of it, frankly, makes any sense. And I don't say that purely intellectually. If you talk to ordinary people, and ask them to explain the trans movement. Most of them can't because it doesn't make any sense to them either. Right. Okay. And right. yet, and yet, for that, for actually posing a challenge to the left, which we do all the time. You know, I'm on the left. We pose challenges to each other constantly. Should we support surrogacy? Is there such a thing as altruism when it comes to the trade in women's bodies? All of those things, we challenge, but we're not actually allowed to challenge anyone on the left about this issue, are we? which has actually pushed some of my dear you know, colleagues or friends more to the right, which I'm very, very sad about. What is it about the left that means it's embraced pretty much all of the core issues that face women today and that are bad for our, or, or that impede, shall we just say, our liberation? What went wrong? Well, here I would just go back to the, the 
original radical feminist insights of the 60s and 70s, which was to say of all of these systems of oppression we look at in the contemporary world, white supremacy, capitalism, uh, first world imperialism, and patriarchy, if you look at them, um, the oldest of those systems is patriarchy. It goes back not just hundreds of years, but thousands of years. And the, the way patriarchy works is so woven into the fabric of everyday life. Right? It's just so essential to the way we are raised to see ourselves as people that not surprisingly, it's very hard to, to distance ourselves from it and break with it. And so radical feminism, like any liberation movement, is taking on a tough chore when it says we are going to try to, to make sense of and then take apart a system that provides power and material gain for certain people. That's not easy in any case, but I think it's particularly hard for feminism because of the way those patriarchal practices, including practices in family and sexuality, are so woven into everyday life. Um, you know, let me let me digress briefly, but it'll illustrate this. When I was first learning about the feminist anti-pornography movement and talking to this friend of mine, Jim Copland, he said, and, and I was said, why are people so angry at radical feminists for even raising a critique of pornography? And he said, well, it's because it's not just about movies and magazines. Right? That gives you a sense of the time. That's when pornographic magazines were still a big right. part of the market. <laughs> uh, he said, because everybody knows when you critique pornography, you're not limiting it to a critique of this one media. You're talking about the way we learn to become sexual, the way our pleasure is experienced. And he said, when you come at people and say, listen, the way you have learned to, to experience sexual pleasure needs to be rethought. That one's tough. People don't say, oh, okay, great. You know, let me completely rethink the way I'm a sexual being. That, you know, it, it's not surprising people don't um, don't immediately move to that position. Well, so, and it, it also ties into that old cliche, which is about if your principles cost you nothing, then yeah, they're not really yeah, principles. Yeah. It's a set of convenient yeah, right, circumstances. Right. And and the other thing, you know, which may be impolite to point out, but although there are women in the left, there are female leaders in the left, the left is still primarily a male formation oh, yeah. in my political experience. I think more so and, than ever, certainly in the UK, more yeah, so than ever. Yeah. And so if the political left defined primarily for me in the US as anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist is dominated by men who have been socialized to experience sexual pleasure through pornography and more generally the subordination of women, it's not surprising they reject that. Now, there's a, a different question is why is the left embraced the trans ideology with such fervor recently. And, and here I think there's still more work to be done, but my working hypothesis is reflects exactly what you just said. The left knows it needs to be feminist. And one way to demonstrate that you're a feminist is to embrace the trans ideology in the contemporary political landscape. And as you said, it costs men nothing to embrace it. It costs the less nothing to embrace because the the injuries that inevitably come from the trans movement are suffered primarily by women. And so it's a kind of no cost way to, you know, we use the term in the US to signal your virtue. Oh right? yes, we use that here and, too. And so I think the left has, has attached itself to the trans movement with such fervor because it 
presents the appearance of being committed to women's rights, to feminism, to the eradication of patriarchy, but actually doesn't do that. In well, fact, in it's fact, conversely, I mean, it does. It does the the absolute polar opposite. It it threatens our rights, and it also tells us that we are worthless, and that we have no voice. And I say, you know, I, I've said this repeatedly. If these men, these bearded man bun dudes that virtue signaled their way into a faux feminism, if they are so determined to convince themselves and others that trans women are women, why do they listen to them? Because they don't <laughs> listen to they don't listen to women. Why are they listening to trans women? So it's interesting that the penis actually is the bit that's listened to. And that sounds reductionist, doesn't it? Because the last thing that we are, um, what's called radical feminism, I just call it feminism, is we're not biologically determinist at all. We're the opposite of that. There are specific issues relating to our biology that we can't ignore and should not, but that this does not predetermine our status in the world in relation to men, which is the lie we've always been told. And and yet there are there are men that insist that our liberation will come from embracing the idea or fact, as they would put it, that men can be women. Do they think about how bonkers that sounds? Uh, I don't think they give it serious thought uh, because as they, if they did, I believe, as you're suggesting, they'd come to a different conclusion. You know, here's another way to think about it, perhaps. In the United States, we're told that no one should be colorblind. That to be colorblind, to pretend that race doesn't matter, is to deny the racist history and contemporary practices of the country, which I agree with. We should be colorblind in the sense we should try to, in our daily lives, uh, if we're white, treat people of color you know, decently, not with prejudice and not with stereotypes, of course. But you can't you know, sort of colorblind your way to a a non-racist world. Yet, if you flip over to the sex gender system, that's essentially what the trans movement is saying is, you know, there there is no history, there is no practice. You can be whoever you want and, you know, nobody should say anything about it. And it it's another one of those places where it doesn't make a lot of sense. The parallel is quite clear. Um, and, and you see this in the way that when occasionally a white person impersonates a black person or a white person impersonates an indigenous person. There is an outcry on the left for the the sham, as there should be. I don't think white people should go around pretending to be black. So you mean like Rachel right? Dolezal, for example? Right. And there have been several notice, uh, well-known uh, American academics who claim to have indigenous uh, heritage who didn't. Okay. That's all fine, right? We should be honest about who we are. Because after all, to be a white person, I don't need to pretend to be black to contribute to an anti-racist movement. I can contribute as a white person. In fact, that's you know where I'm gonna make the most contribution by calling out fellow white people. Well, you know, the logic of that applies pretty easily. I'm not saying that race and, and the sex gender question are completely analogous because they're obviously very different. But the minute somebody tries to make that analogy. Hey, you know, we don't let white people pretend to be black. Why are we letting 
men pretend to be women. There was an outcry and people, you know, the, the denunciation cycle starts. You asked when I was first canceled and I, I was trying to remember, I've been denounced so many times. I've been shouted at, I've been protested. I've had people try to interfere with lectures I've given. Uh, I've been, you know, disinvited, uh, no platformed as we say. Uh, it's They're now piling up at a, a rate that, you know, I only vaguely remember. But the one that really sticks in my mind, and I think it says something about the left, is uh, real briefly, there was a, a radical bookstore in Austin, Texas, still there actually, um, nonprofit, you know, kind of anarchist collective. And I had always supported them, you know, given them money here and there and done talks at the store. And without ever speaking to me about it, the staff had decided I was unacceptable because of my writing on trans. And instead of doing what comrades do, which is, you know, talking it out, they simply sent an email blast to their entire mailing list, denouncing me and announcing that they would separate from me. They would no longer sell my books, nor would I be welcome in the store. And I thought, well, this is interesting. It's not just that they disagree, which of course they have a right to, and it's not just that they want to separate from me, which they have a right to. It's that they did it without consultation, without the kind of, you know, both intellectually and politically uh, acceptable process of talking things out. And that told me something about fear. It told me something about how the left wants to impose this trans ideology uh, without actually engaging the argument. And, and as I've said many times, I've been denounced more times than I can count, but I've never had anyone actually engage my argument no. and say, here's, here's why your article or your book is wrong. Well, they and I don't. think that says a lot. They don't. I mean, we were together in Texas when my book on yeah. prostitution came out. Yeah. And, you know, you, you were great during that trip. We traveled together, didn't we, to various venues to promote the book and talk with people about the ideas in the book. And then one morning uh -huh. we were due to go to a sixth form uh, college to, uh -huh. I was going to do a talk about the harms of prostitution and what I discovered during my, you know, five year research. And I was told that I couldn't come on campus because I was too dangerous. And my transphobia had been mentioned mm -hmm. as something that meant I was an unsafe person. And I wasn't even going to talk to them about that, but even if I were, yeah. I mean, it was outrageous, wasn't it? Do you remember that? I remember quite well. I got a call the night before from a very distressed faculty member who had essentially caved into this demand from a small group of students and uh, was both angry at me for having putting him, put him in this position and apologetic because he knew the whole thing was crazy. Uh, and I do remember, you know, then having to apologize to you. But uh, of course, you know, now that's that's just one of many for you as well. Uh, because you're much more public, you 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 get much more um, intense pushback. And I'd also like to make one other observation. You've actually been physically threatened. Uh, for all of the, the denunciations I've put up with, no one's ever taken a swing at me. And I've never really felt at, threatened. And I think that's an important distinction. You know, in all of my work in feminism, uh, I've never felt like somebody was going to come after me physically or really try to hurt me. And of course, women have experienced that over and over again. Um, you know, it's another thing that's different for men and women in feminism. 
the consequences are, are much different. Which brings me to this question. Do you think I'm a man-hater? <laughs> you know, uh, I remember believing that cliche that, you know, there was something about feminist women. Uh, most, you know, they, first of all, they're all ugly. They can't get dates. They hate men. You, I you mean, know, those the three litany. things are all true, of course. Yeah. You know, we can't, uh, we can't get dates with men. We can't. I've, but, tri I've tried. I can't tell you how many times I've tried. <laughs> but uh, again, I had not only the experience of reading feminist work, but of all of a sudden being around feminist, radical feminist women. And again, this is one of those very emotional things. I felt loved. I felt cared for. I felt like they saw me in a way that most men would never see me. They saw me as a human being with flaws, socialized in some particularly nasty ways. But they, you know, when I think about those women in Minneapolis in the anti-pornography movement whom I met, and many of whom are still friends, I think they saw me as a human being. They saw past the masculinity, the bravado, the stupid jokes I might still tell. And I am forever indebted to them. So the idea that feminists hate men is very strange to me. Now, that's not to say that that many women have had experiences with men that make them very wary of men, which is hardly surprising. Uh, anyone who has been the victim of domestic violence or has been raped or has been terrorized by men should be wary of men. Uh, and so uh, I think that men often mistake the caution women might um, move forward with in, in engaging a man with hatred. Because of course, as men, we're tough, but we have the weakest egos, as you know. We, we immediately need uh, our egos to be stroked. We immediately need to be told we are, in fact, you know, big, strong, tough, attractive men. And when women don't do that, I mean, I, I'm sure you could write a whole book on men's angry reactions when you don't treat them the way they think they should be treated. Well, you and know, I used part... to kind of, I mean, obviously there's the, the the challenge to that, the the way that we're perceived in particular yeah. ways. And one of those challenges that I'm always really keen to make is about the man-hater thing. But I just yeah. want to caveat that with two things. First of all, I reserve the right to hate individual men and hate sure. bystanders who let terrible things happen to women. And I think that that's a proud tradition because if we're not angry, then we're not thinking straight. Yeah. But secondly, I think it's really important to emphasize what an optimistic movement feminism is. Because we don't think that you are born bad. We don't think that male babies uh, are somehow pre-programmed to hurt or degrade or abuse girls and women. We don't think any of this is inevitable. We believe utterly in redemption, although we accept that some men have to be kept away from women for their natural life if they're particularly dangerous, and some of them, unfortunately, have been given the license to be that dangerous. But we're full of hope. We're full of optimism. And and this is the the biggest misunderstanding, the, the willful misunderstanding of feminism that hurts me the most and that I think acts as a block for men to appreciate it and women to take part in it is this notion that we just think all men are shits, you're born that way, 
you'll never change and we just have to somehow contain you and stay safe by being protected by other men. It's the antithesis of feminism. Here's my last point and my last question to you because I could talk to you forever. But how do we get more men to see this? We can write books. We can do talks. Most men are not going to pick up a book of yours or mine and they're not going to listen to our talks and hopefully some of them I'm sure we'll be watching this and I hope they get a lot out of it or at least it challenges their thinking. Is there a quick and easy solution? Can we wave a wand and get more men to just have a go at thinking differently and looking at feminism like it's not their enemy or bad for them? Well, you know, we can both point to a a variety of activist projects and education projects that slowly do that. I was thinking many times through this conversation of a friend, uh, also older now, who did batterer intervention groups. So domestic violence perpetrator programs. Right. So men who beat their female partners were often court mandated to come to this program. And because he came at it with a radical feminist perspective, um, I have no doubt that over the many years he did those groups, he changed many men's perspective. And that's all to the good. Uh, I've been a teacher much of my adult life. And I do think that we shouldn't overestimate you know, how, how education can change hearts and minds. But certainly I have former students who I know were changed by that. But I keep, the older I get, perhaps the more I think about what it means to model feminism in everyday life, even if you don't ever use the term. Um, So I I mentioned my friend Jim Coplin, who was 25 years older than me. And if not but for his example, uh, I have no idea where I'd be today. It wasn't just that he lectured me on radical feminism. I watched the way he lived. And he lived those principles in a very deep and moving way. And so I also think, you know, whether we are politically active or not as men, whether we embrace feminism publicly or not, there is a way to do that. And as you pointed out, the alternative is to be a bystander who doesn't intervene. So the way we talk to not only our own boy children or, you know, boys in our lives, but the way we walk through the world matters a lot. When questions about pornography come up, are we willing to forthrightly say, oh, no, I don't use it and I, I think it's a, you know, a woman-hating practice and here's why. Uh, all of these things are part of the slow process of what we hope creates a more civilized world. Uh, there's no guarantee. Um, you know, The same process is going forward on race in the United States with progress and defeat and, you know, back and forth. Um, I, I certainly, I don't have any new strategies. I certainly don't have a crystal ball. I know that the, the, the way that I've tried to live has not only, I hope, contributed to a movement, but it's made me a better person. It's allowed me to live a deeper and richer emotional life. It's improved my relationships, not just with women, but with other men. Um, And so, you know, 
you roll the dice and hope for the best. But I think there is politics, there is education, and then there is everyday life, and they're all part of the the project. And I, I, you know, I hope when I die, people think, well, I made some contribution. But if nothing else, I know, you know, my own life was improved by being willing to think about the way that the short-term material benefits of being a man in patriarchy were not worth giving up some of your own humanity. And in the end, that's that's what I tell men is, if you want to be fully human, you can, you can be a real man or you can be a human being, but you can't be both. I love and, that. I yeah. love that. You can be fully human or you can be a real man is the replacement t-shirt for <laughs> this is what a feminist looks like. And Bob, I could talk to you all day, but we are uh, going to have to finish here. And that's yeah. a brilliant, brilliant note to end on. Yeah.